6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Book of Daniel. We're going to discover in a subsequent vision the same information that in effect supports this same view. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 7. But what's interesting here is Babylon, of course, rose in 606 B.C., as I mentioned. In 539, the Persians conquered Babylon. And the Persians endured till a young guy by the name of Alexander the Great conquers the Persians in 332 B.C. Greece continues till about 68 B.C. when this upstart on the Tiber called Rome by then has, conquers the Greeks. And the question is, who conquered the Romans? No one did. Right on. Exactly. Rome, Rome fro broke into pieces, and each one of those pieces has had their day in the sun. The Dutch uh, did, the, the uh, Germans twice, the French did, Spain did with the Armada, England with the mistress, as mistress of the seas, and so forth. But none of them quite equally, and what the, the profile is presented is that th these elements are going to recoalesce again into a final version of the original empire. And that will be the last empire on the planet Earth, because, uh, I should say next to last, because that's the one God intervenes with and sets up His own kingdom. And that's what the mountain, the stone cut without hands, is it turns out to be the Messiah, and the mountain that fills the whole Earth is God's kingdom It's going to take over. We have the whole profile. Now, as most people know, the cradle of civilization was what we call the Fertile Crescent. There was Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, preceding the time we're talking about here with Daniel. But in Babylon, there was a city called Babylon that you know, then conquered the area, and that, this is, brings us contemporaneous with Daniel. But after Babylon, of course, will come the Persians. And the Persians not only conquered, but Expanded, expanded their holdings substantially. And then this young guy, in a matter of just a few years, conquers the Persians. Alexander the Great. A very incredible, incredible career. When he dies, the empire gets divided. Four of his generals divided up. Cassandra takes the far west. Lysimachus takes the, that part that we think of as Anatolia or Turkey. Seleucus takes the east and Ptolemy the south. The two strongest of the four are Ptolemy and Seleucus. They're the primary players, and they, the dynasties, a half a dozen of their dynasties on both sides, fight with each other. And what's caught right in the middle is guess who? Israel. Now, many people talk about the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the silent years. And that's true in a sense, and yet it betrays a Lack of understanding of the book of Daniel. Because in Daniel chapter 11, the history from the Old Testament through the New Testament is written down in advance in chapter 11. And we'll discover the so-called silent years are detailed in advance 
in uh, Daniel 11. Interesting book. And of course the Roman Empire succeeds all of this and uh, grows to be a, 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 a you know, well-known period of our history. What most people don't realize, many of us that study the Bible or study these things, when we think of the Roman Empire, we think of Western Europe. What we fail to keep uh, aware of is that that empire broke into two legs because it got too big to administer. So Diocletian divided it into two legs. And the Western leg, the w Western Europe, breaks apart, falls apart in 476 A.D. and following. The Eastern leg outlasts the Western leg by a thousand years. So much so that we give it a different label. We call it the Byzantine Empire. But it's really just the Eastern leg of the old Roman Empire. Anyway, so we have a period of the times of the Gentiles. This is a, a phrase we find in the book of Luke. Because what Nebuchadnezzar begins, and it will continue until the Antichrist, is the dominion of the planet Earth under Gentile leadership. The Antichrist, uh, the, this coming world leader, I'll tend to call him, ends this peculiar period of time that are known in the Scriptures as the times of the Gentiles. Now it's interesting that from Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7, the focus of the book is on the Gentile world. And the language of the text changes. The book of Daniel is in Hebrew up to chapter 2, and after chapter 7 it's in Hebrew, like most of the Bible. But from 2 to 7 it's in Aramaic, which was the Gentile language of the period, because that's the focus of it. And Daniel's prophecies are a very rare glimpse of the Gentile world. In general, the Bible always talks about both past history and future history, a prophecy, through the lens of Israel. But we have a gift here, a very unusual gift, because Daniel's prophecies are going to focus on the Gentile world. It's an exception in the Bible. As I say, most of it's different, but in, in, from Daniel 2 through Daniel 7, the focus, the center of interest, is the Gentile dominion. And he writes all this down in advance. And uh, now the times of the Gentiles, don't be confused by that phrase, because there's a, some other similar phrases that are not quite the same thing. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. They'll end with the coming world leader, uh, who will be displaced, of course, by the Lord Jesus Christ setting up His kingdom. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, it's, it's frustrating to have to go through Daniel so quickly, because Daniel 2 itself is so dramatic, but we'll keep moving here. As you can imagine, these guys that got upstaged by Daniel and his three friends are looking for an opportunity for revenge. And uh, we get to Daniel chapter 3, and these guys apparently have fanned Nebuchadnezzar's ego, so he issues a very unusual order. He's on an ego trip. So first of all, as part of this ego trip, he builds an image. I assume the image is probably very similar to the one he saw in his dream, except in this case, it's all gold. There's no silver, bronze. It's all gold. In other words, this is sort of his bid for immortality, I suspect. And he, he orders when certain music is played that everyone is to bow down and worship his image. And anyone that doesn't is going to get killed. 
Now, I suspect he was prompted to do this by Daniel's rivals because these rivals knew that these faithful Hebrew young men would refuse to do that. And that was their way of getting them executed. And so that's exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar puts out the word, and uh, they, these three friends of Daniel's fail to bow down. So he orders them into the fiery furnace. In fact, he's so infuriated. Oh, he, he gives them a second chance. If you bow down, everything will be fine. And the three young men tell him, our God is able to save us. And if he isn't, up yours, O king. This is really their attitude. So he's so teed off, he orders the furnace turned up seven times its usual heat. In fact, so much so, the guards involved get consumed doing it. But in any case, uh, they throw these three young men in there. But then, then Nebuchadnezzar goes to look, and he's shocked because he discovers they're not... He says, didn't we throw three guys in there? There's four in there. And it's one of those strange appearances of the Old Testament of apparently the Son of God being with them, with the other three. So there's, there's a visitor with them. So he orders them brought out, and the only thing that's been burned on them are the, are the bindings. They're unharmed. Now this is a very, very famous event, of course, and the fiery furnace event. But many scholars notice something else. So often in the Bible, you'll find a narrative, an actual event that happened, detailed, but it also tends to model or foreshadow something larger in the future. We call that a, a, a foreshadowing. A, it's called a type. There's a typological conjecture here. And the typological conjecture would suggest that this image, we know from the book of Revelation, there's going to be a final world leader. And he's going to have an image that he's going to force people to worship. Those that don't worship will be put to death. So we think, gee, there's a, there's a foreshadowing here. And the fact that it's six cubits wide and six cubits high is suggestive. The 666 is even hinted at here. Well, uh, and that may have some, and, and fire is often used in the scripture as an, uh, as an idiom of judgment. But if that's the case, the question that gets surfaced here is where was Daniel? Where was Daniel? Because he's missing. If, but many people don't notice in chapter 3 this very familiar story, but Daniel's not among them. There's three possibilities. One possibility is Daniel must have yielded to the king's challenge, he must have bowed to this image. How many think so? Absolutely not. Absolutely, you're right. The other thing is maybe somehow Daniel was exempted from the accusation by his enemies. Somehow I don't think that's true either. The third possibility is the reasonable conjecture, and that's that Daniel was removed from the situation somehow. I suspect that he was, a, since he was so senior for the king, he was like virtually prime minister, that he was sent on some errand for the king, some foreign assignment to go do, he's on some kind of a trip. And that's what his enemies took advantage of to try to get his three buddies executed. The point is that Daniel, doesn't tell, explain why, but Daniel's not, not in this situation. And so many people that uh, make a point of that, that it's kind of interesting that there's apparently a privileged believer removed before the judgment. And so that you could, I wouldn't make doctrine from that, but I think it's interesting to observe. Well, chapter 4 is a surprising chapter because Nebuchadnezzar writes the chapter himself. He writes it and has it posted throughout the entire world that he controls. 
He ends up having a second dream in which there was a great tree that was hewn down. After, I'll give you a brief version of it. It was cut down after seven years. And Daniel interprets the dream to him. Nebuchadnezzar is on, on the ramparts of Babylon and taking pride. Look what I have done. He's on a big ego trip. And that's exactly what the dream was anticipating. Because of pride, he would have a seven, year, seven years in the penalty box, so to speak. And a year later, he's again on this uh, parapet bragging about how, what a great king he, he, he thinks he is. And uh, he's stricken with a mental derangement, a form of lycanthropy, the, where he is literally eating grass. The, uh, according to the uh, uh, Hebrew records, uh, uh, Talmud, I think it is, the, um, Daniel uh, was his nurse during those seven years. At the end of the seven years, he's cured of that, but he also recognizes and acknowledges that it was a fulfillment of the dream that he had himself a year earlier. And so he writes the chapter. He recovers and he publishes his personal testimony throughout the entire world. And I personally, from reading chapter 4, will not be surprised when in heaven, if I run into Nebuchadnezzar, I think he's a saved person, interestingly enough. He had a very intimate relationship with his, his friend Daniel. They were very close, apparently. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, ultimately passes away. Oh, the reason he's so prideful, you need to have a little perspective of Babylon. The city of Babylon, of course, was fed by the Euphrates. It straddled the Euphrates virtually. And they had a double wall system. If you look at just the Babylon proper, it has, not only, it has a, a double wall and a moat, 250 watchtowers, 100 feet higher than the wall itself. There's a banquet hall involved. I'll show you where some of this stuff is. That's the town itself. There's a processional way up at the top. And there's the Tower of Babel that's featured in Genesis 11, uh, the Temple of Marduk, and so forth. The king's palace is going to be the scene of our, the events in chapter 5. And that building has been rebuilt. But uh, notice how the, the river Euphrates goes through the city to provide it water in case of a siege, but it also that water feeds the moat that protects the city. And uh, the wall was no trivial wall. They had chariot races four to six abreast on top of the wall. So it's a, this is a, and it's, you're talking, uh, you know, 15, mile, uh, 15 miles on a side. So this is a sizable place, and it was considered impregnable, and therein lies their vulnerability. Now the kings of the Babylon Empire, after Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had Nebuchadnezzar as his son that uh, established the kingdom, and he has um, two sons and uh, two daughters. And his first son takes over for a bit, but he's a, he's a bad apple. His other daughter married. But uh, Neri Glasser uh, has a, he, he takes over, and his son, I think, lasts two months. And then finally, uh, Nabonidus takes over. And he has his son, Belshazzar, as a co-regent. We'll discover that Nabonidus was just, he, he had married one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. Uh, he... Uh, is just not interested in Babylon. He's off in foreign intrigues uh, down in Arabia and doing other things. In fact, he had not been in town for 14 years when it finally falls. And that's worth understanding because there's a huge discrepancy. The secular world had all kinds of evidence that Nabonidus was really the king of Babylon when it fell. And that's why the Bible couldn't be correct. 
Well, they discovered more recently things that point out that Belshazzar, his son, was reigning at the time exactly the way Daniel says. So not only do we know that Daniel wrote, that, that, was, that de chapter 5 was correct, it had to be by an eyewitness, we know now. But, but Daniel 5 is the fall of Babylon. Very, very colorful amount of history here. The Persian army is on the horizon. Instead of defending the city, he throws a party for a thousand of his nobles. And a uh, big mistake. The Persian army is, is formidable and been on the uprise here. But they're having this big party, and, and Belshazzar does a dumb thing. He sends across the street to the museum to bring out the implements that his grandfather had taken from the temple 70 years earlier, and going to use them as party implements. Well, that's just guaranteed to anger God even further, so what the party's doing great until they see the fingers of a man's hand writing on the wall. And of course, it's, you know, it's astonishing to realize how many expressions in our common day language come from Daniel. He saw the handwriting on the wall. You've all used that expression. There's numbers up. You're weighed and found wanting. The idol has clay feet. You see, all these expressions are from the book of Daniel, interestingly enough. The experts there can't understand what's being written. They can't decipher it which is a surprise. But the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, is still alive, and she says to her grandson, there was a guy around in your grandfather's day. You understand they don't have any word for grandfather in Aramaic or Hebrew, so when they say father, that, could, that just means a forebear. So. But anyway, she says, there was a guy around in your grandfather's day that had, this, had the gift to do that. So they bring Daniel out of retirement, and he comes in, they offer him all kinds of rewards. He says, you keep your rewards. Before he gives them the answer he want, he gives an eulogy for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, now there, your grandfather, there was a king. Because whom he would set up, he set up, and who he'd bring down, he'd bring down. Not like you, Squirt. That's virtually his, the phrase of his, his discussion. But then, after all that, he goes ahead and interprets the famous event. What no one knew in the banquet hall, while this was all going on, the Persian army had arranged to divert the Euphrates upriver, so the water level went down, and they slipped in under the gates. They took over Babylon without a battle. And that's going to be important later, but this is going on while the party is going on here. Now, one of the questions that people ask, are there really hidden codes in the Bible? I get that question a lot because of our, our doctoral work and some other materials we have. And it's in the Bible. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor or duty of kings to search out a matter. They're definite. The Bible is full of surprises tucked away underneath the text. There's a form of Hebrew encryption that's well known to anybody that's been a student of cryptography. We take the Hebrew alphabet, the, 11, the 22 letters, take the first 11 and put the second 11 underneath it, so to speak, and then transpose. If you want an aleph, you use a lamed and so forth. And that's a simple form of transposition. And it's, it's named after the first few letters. Instead of aleph, you have a lambda. Instead of a bet, you have a, uh, a mem. So it's, it's equivalent to ALBM. Uh, album is, is, the, is the label given to this form of encryption. If you take the second half of the alphabet and put it in backwards, now you take the letters and put the others in there backwards, that's, you get a different set of transpositions. 
And again, you have an Aleph and a Tau and a, and a Beth and a Shin, and so it's, uh, it's, at, it's called Atbash. According to the Talmud, the belief in the, among the Hebrew scholars is that the encryption that was used in the handwriting of the wall was a form of Atbash, which means the handwriting of the wall, assuming it was Atbash, would have said something like this, except it would be Aramaic letters rather than the, these letters that they use today. And using the Atbash encryption and transposing, you get what Daniel ended up reading to them. Remember that all languages go towards Jerusalem. In other words, all, all, everybody east of Jerusalem goes from right to left. Hebrew, Aramaic, Sanskrit, etc., etc., etc. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. English, Latin, Russian, Greek, uh, you name it. So anyway, so remember Hebrew goes backwards from our point of view. Anyway, so Daniel says many, many. That means, that the word means, by the way, there, also these lang the, the Hebrew only uses consonants. The vowels are inferred. That's a way of bandwidth reduction and so forth, but I won't get into all that here. Many, many means, it means numbered or reckoned. And he interprets it. He says, God hath numbered your kingdom and finished it. The way we would abbreviate this, your number's up. Okay? The next word was tekel, which is, uh, uh, means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting, Daniel explains. The third word is uh, peres, which means broken or divided. Says, Thy kingdom is div divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, something that's also kind of, and by the way, in your King James, it say you Farsan. The you is simply a conjunction, and the Farsan is the plural of Paris, but don't worry about that in the transliteration. If you infer a different vowel than the E, say an A, a paras, is the word for Persians. So there's a pun hidden in here also that's not brought up in your normal translations. But any cases, of course, is what Daniel announces. And uh, that night, of course, Belshazzar is slain, and the Persians take over the city. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next session, because we'll get to Ezra, and I'll use that occasion to explain what Cyrus did when Cyrus makes his grand entrance. And that's a, that's a great scene, but we'll hold that for the next session. In uh, Daniel 6, by now, Daniel's about 83 years old. And one of the interesting things about Daniel's career is that he rises to power in the Second Empire. In other words, he was the number two man, so to speak, or you know, high, he was high up under Nebuchadnezzar. He rose because he interpreted Daniel too. He was given great privileges and responsibilities under Nebuchadnezzar. When the Persians take over the Babylonians, he again rises to uh, power. To, he was, he's the number three ruler in the kingdom. And uh, very prominent, even though he's 83. And uh, in fact, he is appointed Rab Mag, the chief of the Magi. You need to understand the Magi for lots of reasons. The Magi were a hereditary priesthood that had the power to appoint the king. In other words, they were a priestly sect, it was religious, and yet it was also administrative. That's where we get the word magistrate from that word, magi. But they were hereditary. They were Medes. In the combined empire, the Medes and the Persians, the Medes had that particular role. 
Daniel is appointed the Rab Mag, the head of that priesthood. Now, how do you think it went over for these Medes to be now reporting to a Jew? They were not excited about the prospect, apparently, because they're the ones, I believe, that engineered this uh, uh, execu attempted execution of Daniel. So the jealous rivals entrapped him into the lion's den. The king of the Persians, they had a strange law in, among them in, in Persia that the king could write a law, but he could not change it once it's written. We find that operative here in Daniel 6. You'll also, it's essential to understand for the book of Esther that we'll come to later, next session. But in any case, uh, the king is tricked into signing this document. And Dan, if anyone's found praying to the wrong God, he gets to the lion's den. Of course, Daniel's very faithful, and he is praying. And uh, so he gets into this lion's den. You all know the story. It's interesting that the king himself was upset, but he couldn't change it. And that next morning, he rushes there to see if Daniel's okay. He, he cares about Daniel. You see that all through this. And Daniel, of course, is miraculously spared. But something that is implied by this and some other writings is that Daniel apparently received some prophecies that he entrusted to a cabal, a secret subgroup of the Magi that passed it on for 500 years. And these guys are the guys that follow the star to Bethlehem. And there's circumstances around that you need to understand. The Parthian Empire was the rival to Rome. And you need to understand that and who they were to really understand why Herod was so nervous when they arrived and why he was so different to them. There's a whole background there. But ultimately, these magi would follow a prophecy that would lead them to a manger in Bethlehem. And we'll deal with that, of course, when we get to Matthew chapter 2. Well, that, we've gone through half the book of Daniel. The, the, the last half are prophecies. There are the four beasts of Daniel 7, Ram and Hego to Daniel 8, the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, the dark side of the spiritual warfare thing in Daniel 10, and the climax of the book in Daniel 11 and 12. It's the final consummation of all things. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.